Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, your voice, your vote, with every seat in New Jersey's legislature up for grabs next week, parental rights is one of those hot button topics that could be driving folks out to the polls. People are generally more concerned about turning out their base. Um, and so for Republicans, that has been focused a lot on parental rights and parental control as an issue to rally the base. Also, pro-Palestinian protests continue, this time in downtown Newark, calls for an immediate ceasefire as the death toll in Gaza continues to climb. Plus, closing Edna Mahan. The Edna facility as a whole is a crumbling facility. So in order to provide a, an appropriate physical facility, we felt that it was necessary to move, at least on a temporary basis. After years of violence and sexual abuse allegations, an exclusive look at the infamous women's prison and the changes being made to help the women move on. And honoring Sakia Gunn, the city of Newark remembers the stabbing tragedy and now the legacy of a queer teen murdered two decades ago. With this sign, her name, her name will forever be on this earth. It's, everyone's gonna know who she is. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. Funding for NJ Spotlight News provided by the members of the New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. RWJ Barnabas Health, let's be healthy together. And Orsted, committed to the creation of a new long-term sustainable clean energy future for New Jersey. From NJPBS, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Hello and thanks for joining us this Monday. I'm Joanna Gagas, in for Brianna Venozzi. We're in the final stretch of the 2023 election season with candidates pounding the pavement, trying to turn out the vote. Early in-person voting has already begun. Governor Murphy placing his ballot on Saturday, the first official day of in-person voting. Locations are open in each county. Mail-in ballots can now also be submitted at drop boxes that are also scattered around each county. And in these final days of campaigning for New Jersey's legislators who are all on the ballot next Tuesday, November 7th, one campaign slogan has picked up steam among Republicans, parental rights. It's a topic that NJ Spotlight News education and child welfare writer Hannah Gross has covered quite a bit as it's played out in schools and school board debates over the last year. She's with me now to talk about how parental choice is playing in this upcoming election. Hannah, so good to have you sitting down with me today. Uh, when we hear this term parental controls, parental choice, something mm -hmm. you've been reporting about a lot of recently, it's really become somewhat of a battle cry, particularly for Republicans during this election cycle. How is it playing out for voters? What's happening generally for voters when they hear that term parental choice? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So recent polling from FDU shows that if voters are primed by asking about parental choice and parental control before they pick which candidate they prefer, they're more likely to favor the Republican candidate. But because there's such a big impact from that priming question, it also shows that voters might not already be thinking about parental control. So it's going to depend if they're thinking about it, what the results are at the polls on election day. And of course, the polls are just trying to gauge, right, what's going yeah. to happen, how energized are voters, what are the key issues that are driving them out. It's a topic that you've been covering a lot. What does it mean? What, what, when people call for more parental choice, more parental control, what are they asking for generally? 
Yeah, so a lot of this movement has been focused on parental control in schools and more involvement of parents or caregivers, um, which has widespread support when you talk about parents being involved in a children's education. But when you look at some of the policies that fall under this umbrella, especially from the advocates for it on the more conservative right, these policies like um, getting rid of books that are in school libraries and also notifying parents of a child's gender identity, even if the child might not want that, those policies have far less support. So it's something that um, your reporting shows once people really start to understand what those policies are, we start to see those numbers change in terms of their support for it. Um, just break down a little bit what FDU recently released a poll. Can you help us understand what they saw in terms of how they presented the issue and where voters really stand? Yeah, so the FDU poll really just asked this priming question, um, asking, do you support parental control? And after that, they asked about candidate preference. But following this polling from FDU, the NJEA, the state's teachers union, and also PPP public policy polling, they came out with another, another polling um, that looked directly at the issues. And that poll found that there was not widespread support for book bans and not widespread support for parental notification of gender identity. Um, which they phrased as forced outing that would have a negative impact on children. And to be clear, we're talking we're talking most specifically about LGBTQ plus books that there have been renewed calls over the last few years to have uh, books banned from public libraries and school libraries. When we talk about what's going to happen, it's it's been really difficult to really gauge how these elections go. We've seen polls falter mm -hmm. in the last few years. Do we have a sense of whether or not this has been a really strong uh, kind of pull for voters to get out, to, to be energized enough to get out to the polls when we know there's likely to be low voter turnout? Yeah, so it is likely going to be a low turnout election because it is an off year. And in those low turnout elections, people are generally more concerned about turning out their base. Um, and so for Republicans, that has been focused a lot on parental rights and parental control as an issue to rally the base. The polling from FDU has shown that it leads to widespread support among independents. Um, but it's unclear if these independents will turn out on Election Day when much of the outreach is focusing on rallying the base. Hannah Gross, great reporting as always. Thank you. Thank you for having me. To read more about the polling data around parental choice issues and its impact on this election, check out Hannah's article at njspotlightnews.org. The family of 10-year-old Miranda Vargas, who was killed in a school bus crash in 2018, will be paid $7 million. The Vargas family reached a settlement with the Paramus School District earlier this month. The district also settled with the family of Asher Majid, a student who was left in critical condition after the crash. Majid's family will receive $12.5 million from the Paramus District. Social studies teacher Jennifer Williamson Kennedy was also killed in the crash, and her family still has an ongoing suit against the district. District. The crash occurred when the bus driver, Huddy Muldrow Sr., missed his exit on Route 80, veered across three lanes of traffic, and attempted to cross to the other side of the highway illegally. The bus was hit by an oncoming dump truck. The attorney for the families has said the district should have known about Muldrow's muddy driving record that included 20 license suspensions and five crashes. He's since been sentenced to 10 years in prison. The family of the 43 other students on the bus have also sued the dump truck company. Marching in downtown Newark, outside City Hall, and down to Senator Cory Booker's office, Palestinian protesters chanted, 
from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. It's New Jersey's latest rally led by the Palestinian American Community Center. The group that's participating in a week of action is urging New Jersey's U.S. Senators Bob Menendez and Cory Booker to call for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. And they're asking supporters to write in free Palestine or ceasefire now on early voting ballots. Their march in Newark comes as Israeli forces have entered their second stage of the war, according to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Israel Defense Forces have pushed deeper into Gaza, calling for a complete siege and have continued their strikes on the Strip. To date, more than 8,300 Palestinians have been killed, including women and children. Israel has warned Palestinians in Gaza to flee south to a region they've previously bombed, although communications have been cut off throughout much of the region, and more than 117,000 have already been displaced. Israel also warned Palestinians to evacuate the second largest hospital in Gaza City, a move that's drawn concern from the head of the World Health Organization who said health care must always be protected. The humanitarian crisis there is growing as civilians remain cut off from electricity, food and fuel. The United Nations calling the situation more desperate by the hour. About two years ago, Governor Murphy ordered the beleaguered Edna Mahan Correctional Facility for Women to close following numerous allegations of sexual abuse and violence against the women incarcerated there. Well, that closing process has begun after nearly 75 women were moved to a satellite location last week. NJ Spotlight News was given a rare look at both the crumbling Edna facility as well as the new temporary prison that the women have been moved to. I had a chance to speak with the new head of the Department of Corrections, as well as advocates for prison reform about these changes. There were issues with physical infrastructure, like inadequate ventilation. It's burning up in there. You do have a fan, but it's a very small fan. Nafisa Goldsmith and Cassandra Severe both spent time at the Edna Mahan Correctional Facility for Women in Clinton and know all too well how poorly it was operated, both from the physical building. Intermittent uh, access to clean water at times. As women, you know, that's challenging, especially, you know, during our administration period. To the treatment of the women living in the facility. Human dignity was not at the forefront. I was there when, you know, officers were very verbally abusive and physically abusive. After numerous allegations of sexual and physical assault, in 2021, Governor Murphy ordered the Edna Mahan facility to be closed. Then last year, 14 corrections officers were indicted on charges of conspiracy and official misconduct following the violent beating of multiple women in the facility. Just last week, that process finally began with around 75 women being moved out of the Hunterdon County facility to a nearby temporary space. The Edna facility as a whole is a crumbling facility. So in order to provide a, an appropriate physical facility, we felt that it was necessary to move at least on a temporary basis until the permanent facility is constructed. Bonnie Kerness is an advocate for incarcerated individuals and has been monitoring Edna for decades. She's happy to see the administration led by the new commissioner of the Department of Corrections, Victoria Kuhn, finally making structural changes that are bringing life and dignity to those now at the satellite location. Instead of metal tables and chairs in the day room, there are couches, there are rugs. It is much more homey, much more comfortable. One of the key goals of opening up this temporary facility was to make it as normative a facility as possible, as normative a prison facility 
can be, and that's everything from the furniture to the paint to the housing units. How do you ensure that when it comes to oversight of what happens in the prison, when it comes to those responsible uh, for caring for these women, that there are changes there significant enough that we don't see repeats of some of the accusations that came out of Edna Manhattan? Love the question. You have to be boots on the ground in order, and, and you have to be involved. You cannot sit in an ivory tower and expect that there are changes that are going to happen. You have to have the right individuals in administration that are working with the population, that are buying into why cultural change is necessary, and then you have to give them the tools to be able to do that. So things like body-worn camera and, and fixed cameras and having staff accountability. I am not hearing complaints, certainly about sexual harassment. I'm not hearing complaints about uh, any harassment. The culture change uh, has been massive. Kerness says she does still hear complaints from the women in maximum security who are still at the original Edna facility, living with the old decrepit infrastructure. They won't be moved until the new building is built. But as structural changes are being made, there's a renewed focus on restorative programs for the women who want to take advantage of them. The programming pieces, the addressing trauma, um, the getting ready to re-enter the community. It's the job readiness piece. It's the educational piece. Everything from securing a GED all the way through a bachelor's. And it's the job readiness folks coming in in the community who also comes in to support. Severe says outreach programs like that change the course of her life. And when a rep from Essex County Community College spoke to her, it offered something she'd never had before. A light, you know, a way out, you know, opportunity. Um, of second chances. And I really understood like, this is what second chances may feel like. And she just said, hey, you know, when you guys come home, if you give yourself a chance, you know, let me help you, you know, so you can start to walk into your power. We can see that there is a lot of thought being put into what corrections looks like in the state of New Jersey. They have quite a bit of trauma-informed uh, programs. Education is something that is praised and uplifted. They are now creating an honors system. You know, these are the things that you need to motivate people to move on. But for all the women still incarcerated there, it'll be a few more years before a new building is constructed and they can be relocated. There is a location, it's not yet disclosed, and plans for the building are in the works. Projects editor Colleen O'Day joined me on the tours and has more on the history of the 110-year-old Edna Mahan facility that's set on the sprawling fields of Clinton. Make sure you check out her reporting at njspotlightnews.org. A massive redevelopment project has been announced in Sayreville at the site of a former brownfield. The announcement comes as leaders in state government announced that that brownfield has been almost completely remediated, a 15-year process that Ted Goldberg explains paved the way for this new mixed-use project on Sayreville's waterfront. Sayreville's industrial past includes widespread dumping and pollution. The brownfield site just south of the Driscoll Bridge is one infamous example as the National Lead Company dumped acids and heavy metals for nearly half a century. The bricks used to build the Empire State Building were made here in Sarahville, down at the Sarah and Fisher brick right down the street. The pigments for paint in Calvin's homes were made right here where we stand today. Yet with the decline of these industries, barren spaces were left behind. Reclaiming formerly contaminated lands is a vital part of a sustainable future. In New Jersey, 
We're a smaller state with a long industrial past, but we can't afford to let our space go to waste. A multi-billion dollar project to revitalize the area has endured numerous delays, but leaders today were still optimistic about the Riverton project, which is slated to bring businesses and more than 2,000 residential units to this empty looking area. By promoting environmental health, we promote our economic health because the two are so inextricably linked. You look at an empty field and uh, it doesn't seem particularly exciting, but, but the future is and the possibilities and the things that will result from it is. While speakers and leaders had a lot of optimism today, they were light on specifics. There's no update on when businesses might break ground around here. And as for the cleanup itself, not a lot of specifics there on when it might end. So some areas of concern are remediated faster than others, uh, but it is not as though uh, at, at a site that is as large as this nearly 500 acre site that every inch of the site is contaminated. If you looked into the record of this cleanup, that there are areas that are very near complete. So for the whole thing to be complete, it's still a little ways to go. It is, still, it is still some ways to go. The DEP and EPA have been remediating this area for 15 years, concentrating mostly on land. DEP Commissioner Sean LaTourette says the Raritan River hasn't been a major target for cleanup. There are nearshore remediation efforts uh, that occur sort of in, in mud flats and areas where the water meets the land. LaTourette says other parts of the river are being cleaned as part of federal Superfund projects. Some environmentalists say that's not good enough. Here we are about to have thousands of new residents and customers coming into these stores and into the area. And yet we still have a river that has not even begun to be remediated from the heavy metals and the uh, sulfuric acid and other waste. Greg Rameau leads the nonprofit New York, New Jersey Baykeeper. They've sued National Lead to test the Raritan River for chemicals, and the lawsuit has dragged on for 14 years without a day in court. Rameau says National Lead has agreed to test the water at some point in the future. It's critical to clean the water because people will still be exposed to certain levels of contamination when they use the river. Anybody who catches fish in the river, that those fish are you know, likely to be inedible. The land is owned by North American Properties, and they didn't make anyone available for comment on this story. Leaders at this news conference encouraged communities to keep applying for funds from New Jersey's Brownfields program, even while progress is going slow on current projects. In Sayreville, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. In our Spotlight on Business report tonight, the six-week strike by the United Automobile Workers Union ended today, the union reaching a tentative agreement with General Motors. This is the last of the three U.S. automakers to agree to a deal with UAW. The other two, Ford Motor Company and Stellantis, the owner of Chrysler, struck deals with the union last week. Now, each of the deals includes some of the largest gains secured by the union in decades, from 25% raises with cost of living adjustments to some veteran employees even seeing raises up to 33%. The Ford deal includes $8.1 billion in new plant investments and profit sharing options. And Stellantis agreed to expand the number of plants in operation, creating up to 5,000 new jobs.
Planes, trains, and automobiles, no matter which one you choose, you'll be among a record number of travelers using the Port Authority's airports, railroads, and highways. The Port Authority of New York and New Jersey released their latest numbers showing that 2023 will be the busiest year on record at its airports and nearly 12 million passengers flying in the month of September alone. That's 3% higher than the busiest day on record in 2019. The PATH hit its highest traveler numbers since before the pandemic with nearly 230,000 passengers passing through in one day in September. And the tunnels and bridges have continued their average of 10 million drivers at their crossings, a number that's held steady since 2019, although it's down just a bit since its peak during August of this year. And not to be forgotten, the Port Authority's seaport was the third busiest container port in the nation. Now turning to the markets, here's a look at how stocks closed for the day. This weekend in Newark marked a significant one for folks in the LGBTQ community. A portion of Halsey Street was named after Sakia Gunn, a black lesbian 15-year-old who was brutally stabbed to death on the streets of Newark simply because of who she was. While well, Saturday, friends and loved ones of Sakia celebrated the moment that her name and memory were memorialized forever. Jenna Flanagan, host of PBS's Metro Focus, was there for us and has more on the importance of this moment. I'm here in downtown Newark on the corner of Halsey and Academy Streets for the street naming ceremony for the late Sakia Gunn. Now, Sakia Gunn was a 15-year-old out and proud lesbian who was unfortunately stabbed to death on the corner of Broad and Market 20 years ago. And it is today that the city and the county are finally recognizing her with a section of Halsey Street dedicated in her name. It was an unusually hot and sunny day in late October, but according to Sakia's mother, Latona Gunn, it's because her daughter was beaming down on everyone. My baby's smiling at everybody on a sunny day. Trust me, this sunny day is because of her, because she know what the world is doing for, well, not the world, but everyone you see here is doing for her right now. So. Sakia's death also became a flashpoint for Newark's LGBTQ community, stating that it would no longer live in the shadows and be shunned by society. A portion of Halsey Street that intersects with Academy is now Sakia Gunn Way, a decision that Newark City Council President LaMonica McIver says was chosen intentionally having it here on the same street where our center is for folks who are visiting our center for the community here to walk past and see Sakia Gunsway right here where the Pride Center sits was very important and we strategically did it that way. While Sakia's murder took place on the corner of Broad and Market, that intersection was already named for the late Kenneth Gibson, Newark's first black mayor. Speaking at the podium, best friend Valencia Bailey, who held Sakia in her arms as she died, began to break down as she recognized the true significance of the day. With this time, her name, her name will forever be on this earth. It's, everyone's going to know who she is. Yeah. Whether it's by accident, on purpose, by force, you're going you're gonna to see her name. Now uh, you got the sun, you get to see her name in lights when the sun comes up. You get to see her name and the lights when the moon rises. 
everyone who, who walks by, rides by, shit, go on Google Maps. <laughs> Looking for something That's over here. Y'all gonna see her name. Y'all right. yeah. gonna see Sakia Gunn's name. I'm never gonna let you die, cuz I'm never gonna let you go. Mayor Roz Baraka, who lost his own openly gay sister, Shani Baraka, alongside her partner in a domestic dispute just a few months after Sakia, says the street sign is important, but education about LGBTQ people in Newark, like Sakia and Shani, are key. At the end of the day, we just have to do a better job explaining to our young people the history of the things that goes on in our city. Mayor Baraka says he wants the rest of the country to know that Newark, New Jersey is an open and inclusive city for all. As the ceremony drew to a close, Reverend Kevin Taylor, North Jersey Community Research Initiative Director of LGBTQ Services, including nearby Project WOW, a safe space for the city's queer youth, gave the benediction encouraging everyone to lift up Sakia's name. Yeah, maybe one day we'll honor Sakia Gun Day. Maybe today we'll walk down Sakia Gun Way. Yes. And maybe one day we'll all be bold enough to be Sakia Gun Gay. Stand up for yourself. Stand up in your life. Sakia Gun. Say her name. Say her name. In Newark, I'm Jenna Flanagan for NJ Spotlight News. And make sure you check out Jenna's podcast where she takes a closer look at the death of Sakia Gunn and its impact on the queer community called After Broad and Market. You can download it wherever you listen. That does it for us tonight, but don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Joanna Gagas for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. Have a great night, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years. Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. And by the PSEG Foundation. NJM Insurance Group has been serving New Jersey businesses for over a century. As part of the Garden State, we help companies keep their vehicles on the road, employees on the job, and projects on track. Working to protect employees from illness and injury, to keep goods and services moving across the state. We're proud to be part of New Jersey. NJM, we've got New Jersey covered. If you need to see a doctor, RWJ Barnabas Health has two easy ways to do it from anywhere. You can see an urgent care provider 24-7 on any device with our Telemed app. Or use our website to book a virtual visit with an RWJ Barnabas Health Medical Group provider or specialist, even as a new patient. You've taken every precaution, and so have we. So don't delay your care any longer. RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together.